This is Views from the Watershed. I'm Lizzie Mogul, your tour guide. We're at the western end of the Ashokan Rail Trail. If you walk a little ways down it, you'll reach a bridge over Asopus Creek, just before the point where it flows into the reservoir. Most days you'll see anglers in the water. This is a popular spot for fly fishing. The fishing community and fish themselves are important stakeholders in the watershed, and their lives and livelihoods depend on how the city manages its water. So much of what we think we're seeking in the Catskills, which is this notion of wild, say untouched, is actually quite the opposite. And ironically created by the biggest city on the planet. My name is Todd Spire. This is my 14th season fishing the Asopus. Lifelong angler. Five years ago, I started Asopus Creel as a guide. The story surrounding fly fishing here in the Catskills is so amazing, both historically, geologically, biologically. The Catskills as a whole is often revered as the birthplace of American fly fishing. A lot of the firsts actually happened here on this river, including America's first fishing resort, just a couple miles from where we are now. Milo Barber is basically downtown Phoenicia where the Stony Clove hits. There's a 90-acre fishing resort right there. Now it's an antiques bazaar. You just have an enormous amount of history entangled with this river. The Hudson River School painters actually, most of them were anglers. Ironically, Thomas Cole was one of the only non-anglers in that whole group of painters. The fact that that birth of outdoor recreation was tied to paintings that were made by anglers in this very place, they're completely inseparable. So tourism and fishing really go hand in hand. The other component of fishing history as it relates to the history of the Catskills is the creation of the reservoir system. The impoundment of the waters for the sake of New York City actually improved the conditions for trout fishing here. Almost all of these rivers of the Catskills would be warm water fisheries. In fact, the west branch of the Delaware, the famed fishing spot, didn't become a trout fishery until 1965. It's man-made because of the cold water releases that we get from these headwater dams. Before those western reservoirs came online, the west branch of the Delaware was known as a bass fishery. These trout fisheries now survive because of the impoundment, not in spite of it. (laughs) However, the number of stakeholders is far higher in the west branch of the Delaware. New York and Pennsylvania also have New Jersey who has some interest in those waters. So it's very politicized as far as how those releases are managed. And there's a lot of fishing economy out there. It's a lot of money that comes into that community through fishing. Communities below the dam are outside of the concerns of New York City. And there's some serious frustrations for the Delaware communities not knowing what's coming to them from a water release standpoint. But those relationships are getting better and better year by year. There are stockfish, there are wild fish, which is self-propagating, and then there are native fish, completely untouched by the hands of man. The only trout that's native to the eastern part of the country at all is a brook trout. That's the state fish of New York, and was the only trout present in these waters until stocking programs began. Back in the time of the Milo Barber Resort, it was exclusively brook trout. There weren't stocked fish yet. There are reports of anglers catching literally thousands of fish on a weekend. The reason that there were so many fish is that the rivers were smaller 
protected by tree cover. Waters were colder. They were ice cold, super clean, super clear mountain water. So fish populations would thrive. And that's why people were able to catch so many fish back then. However, the brook trout on several occasions were completely fished out. The rainbow trout is native to the western part of the United States and the Pacific Rim. Rainbow trout here are so strong. Even a tiny little fish will fight like a fish twice its size. It's very exciting to catch rainbow trout in this river. The Esopus was just declared a wild trout fishery at the end of 2020 with this river not receiving any stock trout. It's very exciting. It's an incredible opportunity to prove to fisheries managers just how resilient rivers can be when left to their own devices. Year one as a wild fishery though has been tough. We were hammered by a storm on Christmas Day 2020 that was a hurricane level flood event for this community. When water flows through a river bank like this it scours the rocks on the stream bed that are holding aquatic insects growing on the rocks. We've lost a lot of insect life. We have constant turbidity here in very concentrated periods of time when they are doing releases post-storm. Turbidity is a measurement of mud in the water. Rainbow trout really need to see their prey before hitting it. It's far more difficult to fish with a fly in muddy water, but we have found a way to accept that we can't control mother nature every step of the way. The portal, which is what keeps this river uh, alive with an influx of cold water and keeps the trout fishery healthy, has been under repair for years. The city finally opened it up. It's another example of this kind of symbiotic relationship between the city's control of our water and our need for it for our local economies to thrive. The city has their finger on the button. They control the releases exclusively. And it's an interesting relationship where the city of New York has more control over a massive resource than the state. The city needs us for water. We, in return, have these tourism-driven economies where we take money from the people who live in the city in order to survive. We also take monies in the form of low-interest small business development grants and loans from the city that help us provide that very service. We are in many ways beholden to the city, but we are also hindered by that relationship. There's four things you can do in a tourism-driven economy. You can feed people, you can house them, you can sell them stuff, or you can give them something to do. My local economy in Phoenicia is very much dependent on things like the river and fishing, and there's three fishing shops here, and lots of people employed as guides. I know plenty of people who live here because of me. They lived downstate and they came up and they had a wonderful fishing experience and they became addicted to fishing and then they came and they bought a place and now I can't afford a place. And so I, I, I'm literally part of the problem and I have to sort of live with that. Municipalities struggle to maintain a tax roll when the city sucks up all that land and keeps it at the lowest possible tax rate. This is developable land where people could live. At the same time, just knowing the way that humans live and interact with each other and develop whatever they can, we wouldn't have this beautiful park if it had been left to its own devices. What's important is to start to recognize and acknowledge that the relationship is symbiotic. We need them and they need us. And it has to become a little less terse in order for us to live a happy existence up here in these mountains. And what I see in these generations are people who 
want to be good stewards of the river. What's interesting, if you talk to one scientist within the DEP, whomever you're talking to, their argument is always compelling. If you talk to somebody below the reservoir, their argument will be very compelling. And if you talk to me, my argument will be very compelling. You have to start to embody multiple viewpoints simultaneously. You have to start to embody complexity and look at issues from top to bottom. There is no one single way to manage this river to keep every stakeholder happy. And every stakeholder has a certain right, and every stakeholder has a certain opinion, and every stakeholder also has some innate needs. For me, the way that this river is managed is actually tied to my livelihood. So of course, you know, I'm going to advocate for things that are going to protect the trout and protect this fishery. And somebody might turn around and say, well, what about people? You care more about fish than people? No, but I have self-interest and that doesn't make me self-obsessed, right? But also the management of this river, the creation of these systems for the sake of New York and the benefits that we have survived off of as a community because of that, in a certain way, we owe a debt to the city for protecting this. I think we are always writing stories as individuals, and we're all engaged in those stories at a personal level, at a municipal level, at a state level, at a community level. One of the things that I think we're all subconsciously asking ourselves is what is the story now? It's gonna be interesting to see what is the story we're gonna write. It's either gonna be a love story or a war story. Thanks for listening to another episode of Views from the Watershed. Learn more about this program at walkingthewatershed.com slash podcast tour.